This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. What would you see as an extreme reaction to the, the kind of informa- you know, limited information streams uh, that we see in social media and uh, media today? So I, in, the, in the beginning of the book, I share a few stories that, that could fit the bill for that. The one that I think sticks with me and, and with a lot of readers the most um, is an account of a former colleague of mine who was moving uh, to be near family in the fall of 2020 in the run-up to the election. And he was a a Trump supporter and assumed for a long time that Trump would win. And so he and his wife were shopping for houses and they were looking for like a fixer upper. Um, And I love real estate and and like looking at listings and especially looking at old houses, houses that need work. And so I was like sending him some links and um, to Zillow listings and stuff. And we were talking about this. And as the election got closer and he started to realize, you know, maybe this isn't actually going to go for Trump, he started to back away from his own plan because they had been house shopping in a, a city. And he became convinced that if, and this is largely through like a, a media diet that really centers on like right wing talk radio, mm. um, some internet stuff too, but especially the talk radio. Uh, he became convinced that if if Biden won the election and Trump did not win, um, that the economy was going to tank, that Democrats were going to you know really deliberately sort of like take down the economy, take down the country, and it it came to a head where we were we were talking about this, and I was like, you should buy a house. Like interest rates are really low. You want hmm. this has been your plan, and he said to me, no, I don't want to to buy a house in this city because I don't want to be in the middle of a million starving people. And of course, now we're two years later, almost to the next election as we're recording this, and none of that has happened, right? Like that city is not a million right. starving people, and he didn't need to run for the hills, but he had so bought into this narrative of, uh, you know, the, this media narrative that was lies that was being fed to him, that was, you know, getting him scared and getting him angry, but especially scared. He had yeah. so bought into it that he dramatically changed his life. And of course, most people are not going to so dramatically changed their lives like that. Like that is an outlier case. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a lot, a lot of space in between, between like uh, normalcy and that. And there's a lot of ways that you can do damage to your own life and do damage to relationships. If you bought into uh, lies from a, a, a really skewed and, and confusing and overwhelming media environment, which is what we have. And I assume intelligence was not the issue here it's not that he was a idiot or a stupid person or something like yeah that. no i mean he's a smart guy we he's a, a fellow christian like we even have some shared political positions like we are not at opposite ends of the political spectrum and it, it just didn't matter there wasn't really any reasoning with him on this because it had become very much like a fear thing and an emotional thing. And you, you can only reason with people so much, you know, at that point. Um, right. And and it's also, and I, I make this point a lot in the book, it's also like a, a time thing and an attention thing where if he's driving around for an hour or two a day listening to talk radio that whole time and I'm seeing him for, you know, a couple hours a week at most, you know, my my 
much, much smaller amount of conversation, the great bulk of which is not going to be even talking about politics or talking about the news, there's no way that I win that fight, right? Because he mm-hmm. has a, these these voices from, from the radio coming into his head for hours and hours and hours every week, and, and that is formative and persuasive. Yeah, I think that that that's what came up when I was looking at your book. The the uh, issue of habituation. You can mm-hmm. I've heard pastors say, you know, I get them for an hour a week, but mm-hmm. Fox News gets them for you know eight to fifteen hours a week, or wh- mm-hmm. wh- whatever the news cycle is that you're listening to. And I think that's the big win with always on media is they can habituate you into certain rhythms and patterns of thought. Um, you also separate out emotion here in an interesting way, like what. What role, and you mentioned it, but what role do you think emotion is playing for these people besides just f- scaring people, which is, I think, that, that gets played. Fear is always a factor in, in lots of mm-hmm. people's thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all really like, and especially those of us who tend to like have a, a an identified interest in politics, um, where we enjoy thinking about like policy and political philosophy and stuff. I think we tend to think of ourselves as like these really rational beings and like, Mm -hmm. I believe what I believe because it's logical and it has good evidence and it makes sense. And very often that is just not the case. This is not how, how people work. It's not how, um, even the most logical among us work. And so when we try to sort of put a division between emotion and reason and think that these are such separate things. What happens in practice, I think, is the emotion is still there. We just don't understand how it's working in mm-hmm. us and so and how it's working in, in others. And so we, we come to conversations where we'll try to, and I've done this many times myself, try to argue someone out of something that is functionally, it's an emotional stance and emotional conviction. And so it doesn't really matter what kind of evidence I bring if I'm not addressing the underlying emotions that make that so compelling for them. And likewise, you know, in ourselves, I think a lot of times we think that, you know, we we arrived at a viewpoint because, you know, we're so smart and we're so well-researched. And that's, you know, it's much more emotion-driven and we're we're much less uh, reasonable about it. And so, you know, people coming to us in the same way, trying to, to, to reason with us about something, if we're not in a position where we're open to being reasoned to, reasoned with, um, we're not really going to be reachable by that. And I think for, you know, I don't want to say that evangelicals are, are the only people <laughs> who, right. um, who separate not. reason from emotion, because yeah. we're certainly not. But, but there is, I think, at least in some evangelical circles, certainly in the ones I was raised in, a little bit of a special weirdness about emotion where emotion was viewed, I remember, with a lot of suspicion and as something that misleads you away from God's truth. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I grew up thinking that in in Romans 7, when Paul talks about, I don't do the things that I want to do, uh, I sort of read like an emotion reason division into that passage mm. where the, the reasonable part of him was wanted to do the right thing and this emotional, uncontrollable, dangerous part of him was was leading him into sin. But that's not what it says. It says it's like it's his sin nature that's, that's doing this. Mm. Um, our emotions are not like this uniquely bad or fallen part of us, but I think we, we think about them that way a lot. And it doesn't make our emotions go away. It just makes us unable to deal with them well. And when we cross over into what I would consider deleterious thinking, like conspiracy mindsets, which you mm-hmm. know can can be dangerous, um, 
you can also see emotion at work in reason in the sense that um, there's a certain pleasure that you get out of reasoning in a particular way towards an mm -hmm. end that says like, I have figured this out. I actually understand everybody else is a sheeple, you know, just listening to somebody else, uh, which often has like what we call indefeasible beliefs, right? Beliefs mm -hmm. that just can't be shown any other way. But it's, I, I think we often miss, and I think this is what you're bringing up is the fact that there's a certain amount of like what I call epistemic pleasure or mm -hmm. epistemic emotional need where it has to be this way. Otherwise my house of cards falls. Um, and I see that with views on the Bible as well. Mm. Uh, when you try to reason with people about what scripture is actually saying versus what they thought they said, it's not like you're having a real conversation. It took me forever to figure out we weren't having a real conversation. <laughs> I was fighting some emotion of tradition. So do you think traditions that you said the tradition you grew up with was a little bit more logical leaning? I became a Christian in my early adult period in a charismatic church, which was almost mm -hmm. the exact opposite. They were skeptical mm -hmm. of people who were too logical and too educated. And um, But do you think traditions can have a proper function in moderating uh, these beliefs? Yeah, I think so. And I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that we, we should be able to understand that like our emotions are, are capable of, of being redeemed, just like our reason. Um, and that, you know, like I said, it, it's not especially fallen. It's, it's, it's part of like how God created us to be. And we should be able to, to use emotion well in a way that's not manipulative, but that recognizes that this is a really big part of persuasion and that it's not something we should be cutting off um, and, and sort of, uh, you know, treating with suspicion and also not something that we should be prioritizing and, 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 and giving this, this place of honor where, where reason, you know, doesn't get short shrift. Um, I think it's, it's been really interesting to see in, in recent years um, in the, in sort of like right-wing uh, politics, there's, there's this weird tension where you have like the facts don't care about your feelings crowd. And then you have mm. this new, strong, new, like listen to your heart vibe. And that's sort of the worst of all worlds, I think, where it's, it's, it's the two extremes of like, you know, pretending like you don't have emotions on the one end or, or just indulging them willy nilly and, and not really uh, caring about what the, the evidence says. And I think, yeah, the, the, the church of all places should be interested in, in balancing and, and, and having the, the best of both aspects of ourselves. What do you think about uh, the issue of just proximity to the practices of what we call good knowledge practices, good epistemic practices? Because I find that, you know, I was just talking to a former student today uh, over Instagram where he was posting something about things being poured out of airplanes in the skies, like, you know, uh, chemi chemical trails. Chemical trails. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I pointed out to him that I think that was Chinese government seeding the clouds for rain because they're in the middle of a, 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 you know, a drought. And I pointed him to scientific articles on China doing exactly this. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of me was thinking like, this doesn't make any difference whatsoever because we're, we're actually kind of like in two different headspaces. But one of them is, I know this guy, he's had no contact with the scientific world his entire life. Mm. Um, and I have lots of friends who are scientists. I was hoping to be a social scientist at one point. So I had all kinds of aspirations in that mode. I track science for the last, you know, 40 years or so. I kind of keep my eye on certain topics, including cloud seeding. I don't know why it's been one of those <laughs> interesting things. So like just the fact that there's no actual uh, what we call local or personal knowledge of the practices 
makes it very easy to be skeptical. Um, do you, do you see that as well, kind of across the political spectrum uh, and, and it, within politics itself as well? Yeah, I think we're in a very tricky position in that regard. Um, there's a, a, a Dorothy Sayers quote that I share in the the book, which she she likens. Um, she says, you know, we have a population that's literate in the sense that everyone can read and write, but people don't really understand the way that language can be used to manipulate, as an, that it can be an instrument of power. And she makes a, a scientific analogy, actually. She says it's it's like if I were to go into a scientific laboratory and just start, you know, pressing buttons and pulling knobs and have no idea what I'm doing, that's where, where the public is with, with language in many cases. Um, and I think that that is true and i think it's in some ways even riskier now right because the what social media has done is bring a lot of um conversations and and like sharing of research a lot of that happens in public now in Mm -hmm. a way that it, it once would have happened in private among scholars right and so we have the public getting all these little glimpses of things that we don't really understand, don't have any real expertise in. And it's really, really easy to have misunderstandings, like, like not even with bad intent, just people are, are seeing conversations they don't really understand, hmm. thinking they understand, and then running away with that little bit of information um, to, you know, spread it and, and spread confusion. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I think that the, the you, we can't turn that off, right? Like you can't put that back once the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Um, but what we have, we haven't really figured out a good way to to handle just the, the deluge of information that's coming at us all the time and so much of it that we are, are really not properly equipped to, to understand because we can't, we can't, we're not all scientists. We can't all know everything about everything. Um, and so... Yeah, I don't. There's not an easy solution to that. It, it, it's just we all have these opportunities for misunderstanding all the time. The, it reminds me, you know, this. There's a there's a thought out there. Actually, from the late '90s to the early 2000s, there's some philosophers, mainly European ones, that say like, look, modernism was about what the facts of the matter are. Postmodernism mm-hmm. was about who has control over the story and kind of the relative nature of that control. Um, but we're not in that, and we haven't been in that for like 20, 30 years. We're in hypermodernism where there's just so much information that it's impossible for anybody to pretend like they have domesticated what's actually going on out there. So really the main issue is not about truth or facts of the matter anymore. It's about who's going to guide us through the morass of data. Um which is essentially what we've seen in America in the worst possible. You know, okay. they were they were saying in a hopeful way that we'd have good guides, <laughs> you know, that can like yeah. take us through the cornfield and get us back out, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And yet we've seen kind of in many ways the worst possible guides arise. Uh, and it's almost, you know, in the you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king uh, kind of situation. So what, what role do you ascribe to? I mean, who do you think are good guides out there? Let's start with a hopeful message. <laughs> and and uh, why are they good guides? I mean, I, sure. I love NPR News because I've been listening to it for 30 plus years. And I know all the characters. I know all the personalities. I would say I know all their weaknesses and reportings. I know their biases. Um, so I consider them a decent guide um, in kind of geopolitical news. But do you have some top five and reasons why? 
Uh, I don't know if I, I can summon that up off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I, I like as a as a professional matter, I, I tend to check in with like the wire services a lot, Reuters, Associated Press. You know, they're doing very basic on the ground reporting that um, is because of the way they work, because they're selling their stories to such an array of outlets, they tend to, um, you know, pursue a pretty bare bones approach that I think is still appealing to a lot of people. And I think many people don't realize you can just go straight to the wire services and read that. Can, can you say um, more about what you mean by bare bones? Because I'm not sure everybody will. Yeah. So that. Reuters and, and the Associated Press, um, the way they work, you know, is, is they, they sell their content to local papers, especially like all over the world. Um, and so they're not tending to do a lot of like opinion section. They're not tending to do, um, you know, a lot of the things that people get, uh, frustrated with, with the media, um, which is where I work, the opinion section generally. Um, but you know, people, people will say like, I just want something objective. Well, the, the sort of like the, the plainest, like least editorializing, um, and, and broadly reported source of, of news that you're going to get is going to be the wire services because they, they have to have an, a product that appeals to, um, people in lots of different places and, and, you know, lots of different outlets. Um, I mean, wire services, even like when I, when I edited my college newspaper, we had a subscription to, I think it was the Associated Press. Um, mm -hmm. so it's, it's very widespread and because of that big, big market. Um, they have a little bit of a different uh, incentives than a lot of the other outlets in the in the business. Um, I, I used so, to follow yeah. them closely, but I realized mm -hmm. they didn't give. I wanted more information all the time, mm -hmm. and they're, they yeah. they seem to be pretty conservative. If they didn't, if they weren't able to confirm something, they wouldn't say it. Yeah, they're typically very up up to date though. Like they're more mm -hmm. on the leading edge time wise. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking, they have a, I mean, and, and this is why sometimes you'll see them even publish like a, a two sentence story. Right. They'll just right. say, you know, this happened and then they'll update it later, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting model. And I think something that, um, like I said, many people don't realize is, is available and that you can just go straight to them and read it. Um, so that's something that I like to mention to, to people. Um, I tend to, to, like scan fairly broadly because I'm beyond that because I'm always looking for you know things to, to pitch on to write about mm -hmm. um so I try to to you know dip in and out of a lot of different outlets and see what different circles are are talking about um I think uh one one outlet that many people may not know about that is I think you have to subscribe to see almost all of their content but certainly with your time is the new Atlantis um mm -hmm. if you're interested in in like a, a more serious long form take on things related to technology. Um, they have a lot of strong writers and uh, put out a good magazine. Um, but yeah, I, I think a, a lot of times it's, it's good to not even necessarily look by outlet, but look like by, by specific writer hmm. um, and, and to follow a specific person's work less than, you know, sort of a whole outlet is very big. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and and it, if you find someone who, over time, you determine is is a really um, knowledgeable and, and trustworthy writer, especially on a specific beat, um, for instance, Ruth Graham at the New York Times mm -hmm. is probably one of the, the best religion writers out there right now. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she really knows what she's talking about. Like she has attends church herself. Um, she's not sort of writing about 
these uh, middle America freak shows the way that you, you sort of get that tone sometimes. Um, so like, you know, I can't read obviously everything the New York times puts out, but I, I do almost always click on a, an article from Ruth if I mm-hmm. see it come across my newsfeed. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think a lot of people, when they get into the kind of conspiratorial mindset as well, you, you often, or I often hear, I don't know if this is generally true is, well, they're not covering this. St- why aren't they covering this story? Why aren't they covering that? As they link to a CNN piece. <laughs> right. What, so what's the problem with that logic of, well, why aren't they covering this? Why aren't, why is nobody talking about X, Y, or Z? Yeah. So often as a snarked it's not the case like often things are being covered um you know and it's it's just maybe not quite the way that they want it to be covered but that doesn't mean it's not being covered because in many cases the reason you know about it is that it was in fact covered right um in other cases i think sometimes it's just people don't necessarily understand sort of the the incentives of the business and 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 what people will click on um so you know you'll see People saying like, why isn't anyone covering? Um, I don't know this this terrible thing that happens all the time. Well, the answer is, if it happens all the time, at a certain point, people aren't reading the articles about mm-hmm. it. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's not important. That doesn't mean that the journalists don't wish people would read the articles about it. But like, you do need people to read the articles to be able to like pay your your employees a salary. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, if it's a if it's become sort of a, a dog bites man story, because it is so constant, like you can only write the same piece so many times. Hmm. Um, so sometimes I think that that's the case. Sometimes I think that it's um, the story actually is being covered and you just don't realize it. And then sometimes, you know, there are cases where um, I think it's a. a a case of, of like ignorance, I guess, among the press, um, Mm -hmm. and not, you know, just some, some blind spots sometimes. Um, I think you see blind spots most often. I see them most often with religion reporting, um, where people just don't really know what they don't know and, and maybe don't understand why it would be a story. Um, and that's not, malicious um it does speak to a need to to bring some other perspectives into the newsroom um but it's it's not you know deliberate suppression and that's not to say that that it has never happened in the history of the world that the press has deliberately not covered something i mean we can certainly find examples of of the press embarrassing itself um the biggest one in in recent memory probably being like the the run up to the iraq war is stands out as a huge and very broad uh, case of that, like thing, you know, there are absolutely media failures, but a lot of times it's, it's not as quite what people make it out to be. Um, that reminded me of something. Hold on. <laughs> you, you threw me off with the Iraq war. Um, oh yeah. Well, just had to give you a little twist there. <laughs> I was not expecting the, the run up to the Iraq war to be the, uh, the example of that. Um, it's a little distant, so I think we're maybe less less worked oh. up about it now. We can think about it a little bit more dispassionately. <laughs> yeah, I always love describing uh, these circumstances to eighteen year old students who don't really know about them at all, and them going, "What?" You know, like I, I, I even like saying things like, "Believe it or not, my my dad's generation, you know, Vietnam veteran, they used to openly pr- chant things like, "Never trust anybody over 30. And my students are always like, 
why not? Why, why would anybody not trust people? <laughs> like, who knows what they're talking about under 30, you know? Like, uh, yeah, it's so funny. Uh, but it's the, the issue of knowledge, right? It, which is what mm-hmm. your book is talking about. Um, it comes down to, I guess, like, how do you define knowledge? Because I think, uh, we might have different definitions of knowledge that we would work with, but, and I'm also interested, like, why are you personally interested in this particular problem of knowledge? Let me start with the second one because that's maybe easier. Um, I mean, I'm interested in it partly because of uh, like personal, like relational situations, like that that story I told. Um, partly because of hearing uncomfortably similar stories from mm-hmm. people I knew, um, and then also just from from my my work in in journalism, especially I would say like 2017, 2018, and onward. Um, just finding myself coming back to a lot of themes, not deliberately, but just because they were being raised by what was happening in the world and, and gradually starting to see them as part of a, a larger issue and something that at its core was very much concerned with, with knowledge and, and our ideas about what we know and how we can, can find things out. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, in terms of what what knowledge is, I, I think I went with sort of the very standard um, yeah, the analytic definition, epistemology ju- version yeah, justified, of it, yeah. justified true belief. Um, Which everybody who's read my work knows I don't believe in that junk. But Yeah, well, what would you say? <laughs> oh, I, I just have a, a, a more humane version. Uh, justified true belief is a decent, like it's, it's a decent enough uh, definition, mm-hmm. but um, I'm not sure knowledge is a thing. I, maybe knowing as a verb is a better... Hmm. better way to come into it. And we know by embodying practices that are prescribed to us by those who guide us. And that's, you know, like medical school. Like how do you learn to read an Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm x-ray? How do you learn to spot plumbing problems? Um, Not by reading a collection of facts, right? Or or having justified. And there's also, I'm sure you knew by reading up on justified true belief, there's all kinds of like technical problems with Mm -hmm. that definition. But it's a good running definition to get you into Mm -hmm. the conversation. Yeah, and that was sort of my my goal was to be writing this for people who perhaps before picking up this book had never heard the word epistemology. Right, right. Um, when I was working on the proposal, I wanted to use the word, uh, like maybe even in the subtitle, and my agent oh, and then my yeah. editor were like, no, I you can't do this. Yeah. You need to get this. This cannot appear anywhere on the outside of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and even on the inside, so, it wasn't like until the later chapter. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and not, they, they were right. Like, yeah. and, and I think, um, you know, I, obviously I don't realistically anticipate a world in which like the average American knows what epistemology is, but I do think that that, um, that ignorance of the idea that, that we would think about how we know things like in, in that more deliberate sense. Um, and, and ignorance is, is maybe sort of unfairly, um, is negative, right? Like, like, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't really think that there's a, a reason why people should have known. That's that's not necessarily yeah. something the yeah. average person in most times and places needed to be doing. But now we've gotten ourselves into the situation where the the way that we consume me- media, the the volume of information coming our way, I think we do have to start thinking about it. And um, knowing the word helps. <laughs> it's not yeah. strictly necessary, but. Um, but yeah, just finding a way into saying, like, let's consider not just absorbing everything that Twitter throws our way.
Yeah, and I think the crisis right now has made it, you know, so blaringly obvious that my my short definition is actually of of epistemologists who can know what and how.、Um, hmm. And thinking about those three different phases, and I, and it struck me because I've been working in this for a couple of decades now, but. Most Americans, their only actual formal discussion or learning of epistemology is in a science class with the scientific method, where you really do、mm, talk about how、yeah. can we know something confidently and how can we show、mm-hmm. that it's show that it's true over time and circumstance. Which, sadly, which I think is a pretty good model over time and circumstance in various、mm-hmm. places under the guidance of somebody who actually can see the thing that we're trying to see.、Mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to be the very model that's completely lost in the morass of arguments here and. I mean, I even think about the、uh, the flat Earth、uh, issue. I don't know what to call that. <laughs> That's come up again recently. Yeah.、Uh, and I and I think there was a survey done at a flat Earthers conference, and, and it was something like ninety plus percent of the people came to believe in the flat Earth because of YouTube videos, like specifically、mm. that that particular medium.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if you think about or if you thought about why YouTube and now TikTok.、Uh, Have become this particularly persuasive medium when, and you know, by all, you know, by many accounts, it should be the one we're we're slightly more skeptical of above these other ones. Yeah, yeah. So TikTok wasn't nearly as much on my radar when I was writing this. It hadn't, you know, I was aware of it, of course, but it hadn't come in come to the fore the way it has in the last six months in、mm-hmm. particular.、Um, But I, I've been thinking about this because people have asked me, like, what would you include? What would you do? You wish you had included in the book, and that seems like the obvious thing that I would add if I were revising it right now is something about TikTok.、Um, I, I think that there's a sense on TikTok, especially, but on YouTube as well, that it's like a really authentic medium, and that you know, especially if you have amateur people, amateur people making these videos, like, well, how could they lie? You know, like it's it's the camera doesn't lie. Like it's not like they're gonna. There's no CGI here. Like, how would they fool me? And it also feels very、um, relational and personal. Like you're hearing their voice, you're maybe seeing their face. If you watch them regularly, it feels like you know them, perhaps.、Um, and I think that that's it's really great at establishing trust, and that that's a really big part of this because, you know, you mentioned the scientific method. So much of what we know, though, even maybe it was it was originally like the knowledge was originally established that way, but I didn't personally do、mm-hmm. it. Like I have to take someone's word that they did that, and then here's their findings. And I think it's that step that we're really struggling with a lot of times is is trusting what the other person reports.、Um, and so, and you you see this so much with the, the the media, where like a reporter will go out and you know say I saw this happen, and here's what it was. And then someone reading it, if they don't particularly want it to be true, well, what, you know, why should I believe you?、Um, mm-hmm. I can't go and check it for myself, so I don't, I don't know what's true. I don't know what happened here.、Um, but those those very like direct、uh, video formats, it feels like you did see it.、Um, mm-hmm. It feels like you were there with someone you knew, and so I think it it simulates that trust that we're missing in a lot of other formats.、Mm. Yeah, even so much so that I've heard consultants say, you know, if you want to build trust with an audience on YouTube, don't don't do a highly produced video because people、mm-hmm. won't trust that. You know, go low tech, you holding your phone, you know, speak directly、yeah. to the camera, kind of thing. Yeah, and people don't understand that that is all in many cases very deliberate. I mean,、um, to give a little bit of a more old school example,、uh, in direct mail campaigns that、mm. you know politicians do to raise money.、Um, 
people think of those as, as very slapdash. Um, they are not. It's it's highly technical. Um, the reason they use Courier New, that typewriter looking font, <laughs> is because for older audiences, you know, they're picturing someone sitting down and typing it up. Um, they will sometimes de- even deliberately introduce typos because uh, it gets people's attention. It makes them think like a, a the rushed politician sat down from the campaign trail to write to them. Um, and sometimes people will even be so annoyed by the typo that they'll but they still support the campaign that they'll send in the note saying you did this typo and then send in the money. They're so like, like yes, it's, it's user often, engagement. <laughs> yeah. It's often very calculated mm. this stuff. Um, and, and you know, people just, it feels authentic. It feels like an mm. this person. I mean that, you know, supposedly what George Bush, you know, practiced stumbling over certain big words to mm. show that he was one of the folksy folk, uh, has not been working out so well with mm. Biden though. So the same technique depending yeah. on the person and the, uh, the context, I, can I go back to the the point that you just made about they don't trust you know the people like they didn't do the science experiments and I think of mm-hmm. even in the philosophy of science they'll talk about no scientist has ever done any of the experiments that gets them to the point where they can do their experiments they just have to rely mm-hmm. on faith and the kind of the traditions and the training and the truthfulness of their colleagues mm-hmm. so I, I, like you know just to be clear what what is so foolish? I mean, to me, it sounds very foolish to say like, no, I need to see it for myself. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just hypocritical, like that it seems like, uh, well, you're saying it with this one thing, but you don't treat the rest of your knowledge that way. So do you do you yeah. see it as foolish or you, do you have hope for this technique? I do, I do largely think it's foolish. I mean, I, I think that people don't realize the extent to which they accept reports and they accept expertise that they can't personally evaluate every day. I mean, every time you, you drive on a bridge, right. you're accepting that someone checked it, that yeah. someone built it well. That you're trusting abstract math. Yeah, you're accepting that like the, the builders poured the concrete well. Like like you're every like we can't live without sort of relying on other people's reports and other people's expertise like that. Um, but there'd be very concrete and very inconvenient consequences if you decided you weren't going to trust secondhand knowledge like that in day-to-day life, right? Like if I, living in Pittsburgh especially, suddenly decide I can't drive on any of the bridges, my life is going to get really inconvenient, right? So I'm not going to decide that. But in politics and news, you can decide that and it doesn't have any immediate consequences on you, right? Like I can just decide... Well, I don't actually believe that, you know, they they did this event, that, that this person said this thing like you're claiming. I don't actually believe that this explosion happened when you said it happened. And it doesn't change anything in my life except to make me feel better and more right about and think that the world is as I imagine it to be. Um, so it's it's much easier to, to just sort of be reckless that way, I guess, um, and to decide that you'll believe what you want to believe because nothing happens to you if you're wrong. Yeah. That's horrible. (laughs) 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 I was trying to find a way to to polish that turd, but it really just didn't happen. Uh, Uh, So so this book, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, uh, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Um, So this is a cautionary tale, this this book. Um, if, If you could sit down with... Uh, one of these people that kind of got you interested in this topic or anim- animated your interest in the topic. 
Like what? And and they were ready to listen and say like, look, mm-hmm. tell me what to do, and I'll do it in order to see what the, the world the way you see it. What are the kinds mm-hmm. of practices, what we call epistemic practices, um, that you would want them to inhabit in order to you know be better rather than worse knowers of the world? We're, mean, we're looking a, low a hurdle of, here. <laughs> yeah, low hurdle. A lot of it is is really just about, um, and and this is not just something that that I recommend to like people who are who are really in deep to like some crazy mindset. This is something that's like very much for me, um, especially as someone who works in media and like has to be involved in it to some degree. Um, a lot of it is just about like habits of attention and time use, um, mm. uh, even really simple stuff like. You know, if you're a, if you're a Christian, are you starting your day with like scripture or something and something or something good, or are you starting your day on Twitter or Facebook or Fox News or what have you? Um, also, I think just the amount of time that we're devoting to this stuff. You know, the the voice that is in your head all day every day, be that a podcaster or radio or um, whatever, it doesn't really matter. The, that's going to shape your life. Um, I think we think about this as something sort of political media, something that we sort of just add on to our lives. But if you're spending hours and hours of your day in it, that that is your life now. Mm. Um, and it's going to eventually start having tangible effects, even if it doesn't in the beginning. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big part of it, um, just curating what you pay attention to. Um, One specific suggestion that I make a lot is just try to pick maybe at most six, like half a dozen stories, um, political stories, and, you know, fairly big topics. Something like immigration policy, not like what did the president say on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Something that you can follow over time and Mm -hmm. read actual books on, like that you can come to know in depth so that when you are reading about those or, or you come across some piece of media about that, you actually have background knowledge and can can actually discern whether what you're encountering is is well reported, whether it's reliable, whether it's trustworthy. Um, and and for most people that really is going to be a pretty small number of stories. Mm-hmm. And then having made those selections, do not try to follow everything else. I think we have this this mindset that we all sort of need to be up on the latest headlines and just have a broad sense of what's going on in the world. And I would very much reject that and say for most people, most of the time, knowing about a few things well is much better than having a shallow up to the minute knowledge of sort of everything. Um, because when you have that shallow knowledge, it's just much easier for you to be misled or you know, outright deceived by things that just sort of blow into your life, um, which is you know how, how we encounter so much these days. Um, so yeah, really, limiting, deliberately limiting and informing better habits of, of where our attention goes, both in terms of, you know, how, how long we're putting it there and, and what topics we're focusing on. I think those are two really big, big places to start. So basically I have like a 1980s level of media diet. <laughs> yeah. You I watch mean, the CBS Evening was, News and we read the Sunday fine. paper. <laughs> yeah. We were fine then. We, yeah. we did not need to accelerate to this. And I say that like, you know, as someone who works in media, I'm not against people like reading about politics. Um, but I think there's a big difference between doing that in a, a deliberate time and space for it and having 
your phone out in every spare second, which I am sometimes guilty of too, but having your phone out every spare second, just blasting yourself in the face with one story after another about every conceivable topic and thinking that this is a virtue. Hmm. Well, Bonnie Christian, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance on this very thorny issue. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 